Today's scripture is 1 John chapters 2, verses 12 through 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Camilla, for reading that. A number of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to uh, visit in a sit-in on the public dissertation defense of a friend of mine. He's a, he's a member here, a leader here. He doesn't even know that I'm sharing this. He's on vacation, actually, today. Um, but if you don't know what a public dissertation defense is, the folks who are going for PhDs, the ones who've been in school for like 100,000 years, right, um, eventually they have to present all their findings from their research, right? Um, and they do it in this public setting. So they get a room on the campus that they're studying at, and then these experts in their field come and sit and listen and ask them questions. But it's open to the public. And so he invited me, and I got to sit in. And I thought, you know, it's a civil engineering PhD. I thought, you know, I was an electrical engineering uh, student as a bachelor's student. I'll probably understand like half of what he's talking about. I severely overestimated my powers of understanding. I uh, thought too highly of myself. It was probably like 30%. Um, but really what stuck with me from his dissertation uh, was this concept of catastrophic failures, catastrophic events. So for him, it was uh, power grid outages, power grid failures that lead to water failures in major cities, okay? Um, they start with small, little mistakes small little failures, small little system errors that then creates a cascade effect. And a cascade effect happens when you try to correct the small error, but it creates new unforeseen problems that when you try to correct those problems, then cascade, and eventually you have a giant catastrophic system error. A power grid goes down for an entire U.S. city, right? Probably the most famous example of a catastrophic failure event like this uh, would be Chernobyl. So it's the power plant, the nuclear power plant in Ukraine that over 30 years ago, there was a nuclear meltdown if you're not familiar with it. If you are familiar with the story, uh, maybe you read about it or you watched the miniseries or something, you know 
that what happened at Chernobyl was not that some poor power plant worker walked in that day and accidentally set his coffee cup down on the nuclear meltdown button, right? That's not what happened. He didn't lean too hard on the nuclear meltdown button. That's like an episode of The Simpsons or something, right? What actually happened was there was a small human error, an oversight, and then there were rushed decisions to try and correct that problem, which led to new problems, more rushed decisions, more rushed problems, and eventually uh, the nuclear power plant had a meltdown, right? And my mind draws a straight line from the Chernobyls and the power grid failures, the catastrophic events like that, to catastrophic moral collapses for Christian leaders. These are things that we, we read about way too often, right? Somebody um, cheats on their wife and walks away from the faith. Uh, somebody who's a, a prominent Christian leader after they die. There's abuse scandals that come out. There's embezzlement and fraud. And then I wonder what, what happened in that person's life to get them to that point, right? How did they go uh, so far down that road that they got to that point? And I would be willing to bet that in none of those cases did they accidentally set their coffee cup down on the moral failure button. It's not what happened. What happened was a small sin, a small mistake, a small error led to rushed solutions, hiding, not confessing, not bringing it into the light, led to more sins and more cover-up, and eventually there's a catastrophic cascade of failures that lead to moral collapse, right? And I have a tendency, and maybe you do too, uh, to be, again, think more highly of myself than I ought. I, I look at that and I think, no way, that's not going to be me. That couldn't be me. And yet, the irony in that is that I am also so quick to dismiss my own small sins, the, the harmless sins, the things that maybe I would say to somebody else, say to you sitting here, don't worry too much about it. Don't be legalistic, right? Who cares what shows you watch, what TV, what movie shows you watch, right? Who cares what you're scrolling through on your social media? Who cares how long or heavy the poor is or if you get another drink? Who cares how much you covet your neighbor's stuff or position in life? Who cares how much you medicate your pain with food or drink? Who cares how much you tithe? Who cares how much you pray? Who cares how much you read your Bible? I have a tendency to dismiss these things as small and harmless, but the reality is that there's a cumulative effect, a cascade effect that over the long trajectory of our lives, we might just wake up one day and say, how did I get here? How did I end up here? So the question I have as I think about Ryan Hoff's dissertation defense, which congratulate him if you see him or if you know him, text him. He's Dr. Ryan Hoff now. When I think about that, the question that I have is, how do I live my life in a way that I am faithful over the long haul? How do I live my life in a way that I'm faithful over the long haul? The passage we're looking at this morning, we're going to see that John encourages us and exhorts us to remember the gospel and to reject the world. Remember the gospel and reject the world. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump in. Heavenly Father, um, help us to attend to your voice. Help us to attend to the voice of the Holy Spirit. As we open up the scriptures and we look, we pray that you would meet us here in the pages of 1 John. 
Help us to hear what you might be saying to us, both in encouragement and in exhortation. Help us to hear it so that we would be changed and we would be transformed and that we would be faithful over the long haul in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, my name's Keith. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. Uh, if you uh, need a copy of God's word, please raise your hand. We're in the book of 1 John this morning, chapter 2. Uh, we have copies of the Bible both in English and in Spanish. So, si prefieres español, por favor, levanta la mano y diga español, and someone will bring you a copy in your heart language. Um, we are in chapter 2, as I mentioned, and I, I think it's always helpful for us to start uh, by knowing what the purpose of the letter is as we open up a letter. And so John, in 1 John, gives us a very explicit purpose statement at the end of the book. In 1 John chapter 5, he says, I'm writing these things, this whole letter, to you who believe in Jesus, Christ followers. It's two Christians. And the reason he's writing it is so that you would know that you have eternal life. So even as we rewind and we think through can someone be faithful over the long haul of their lives? Can someone follow Jesus faithfully for, for their entire life? John certainly thinks that yes is the answer, right? He thinks that we should be confident and have a certain sense of proper confidence that Christ is going to keep us until the end, right? Uh, he's going to keep us for eternal life. So um, how then do we stand firm in our faith over the long haul? The first way that we see John encouraging that is he wants us to remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. So open to uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Uh, and first, I think we need to, before we start reading word for word through here, we need to understand who is John talking to in this section. He addresses three different groups of people. You heard uh, Camilla reading it, children, fathers, and young men. Children, fathers, and young men. So um, the question we have to ask before we even jump into the text is, is that literal? Is it literal children? Is it literal fathers? Is it literal young men? Um, I don't think it is. I think it's metaphor. And the reason uh, we can be confident that that's a good way to read this is because throughout the whole letter, he calls Christians children and little children. And that's a metaphor for all believers, all followers of Jesus. And so this is metaphor as we open up. The first group that he talks to are children and little children. And I think this is Christians that are new in their faith, new believers, okay? Then he talks to fathers, and I think this is like veterans, folks who have been walking with Jesus for a long, long time, many, many years. They know a lot. They have a lot of knowledge. They have a lot of experience in life. And then the last group is young men, and I think that's everyone in between. So new believers, veterans in their faith, and everyone in between. So let's look at what he says to children in the faith. Verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then he repeats it. He kind of does a little poetic thing here where he repeats things for emphasis. And in verse 13, he says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. So the reminder for new believers, the reminder for the children in the faith, is the fundamental truth of the gospel message. Maybe you're new to your faith here. Maybe you are just coming back to your faith. You've been away for a while and you've decided that now is the time to kind of jump back into following Jesus. Or maybe you're unsure and you're just checking things out. You're not sure if you want to do this Jesus thing. 
The good news of Jesus, hear me on this, is essentially this. If you put your faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You become a child of God. God is your father. That is the core of the good news of Jesus, the core of the gospel message. Uh, A few weeks ago, I got a text from a family member uh, who does not know Christ. Uh, He texted me to let me know that it was the National Day of Prayer. I didn't know. (laughs) Uh, And and so I texted him back, and I thought, hey, this is maybe a good opportunity. Um, Hey, how can I pray for you? And he said, oh, don't bother. Um, I'm a lost cause. Don't bother. I'm a lost cause. And the fundamental truth of the gospel, friends, is that there's no such thing as a lost cause. You're not a lost cause. There is no lost cause. It's not too late to trust Jesus, to be forgiven of your sins, and to be called a child of God and to know the Father. You're not too far down the trajectory towards catastrophic moral failure to come to Jesus and to be forgiven. There's no one who's too far gone. Listen to the call if you have not done it yet. This is a helpful reminder to all of us in our faith, and it is helpful in our faith to see people put their trust in Jesus for the first time and to see and experience the new life that they experience when they put their faith in him. So John writes first to children, and the the message is, remember the gospel. You're forgiven. You know the Father. But he also writes to the fathers, veterans in their faith. This is what he says in verse 13. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And then in verse 14, he repeats almost word for word. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Almost exactly the exact same uh, wording, right? The only difference is writing and write. The encouragement is the same, though. You know the one, the God, who is from the beginning. This could be some kind of like maybe correction, like don't think you're you know, so old and you've been walking with Jesus for so long that um, you don't need God anymore. I don't think that's what this is. I think this is an encouragement. I think this is an encouragement for you who are in the room who have seen a lot of life, who have walked with Jesus for a very long time, and you've seen a lot of changes happen. Changes in your health, changes in job, financial situation, changes in friendships, changes in marriage. People change, people die. Everything in this life will change except one thing. The God who is from the beginning never changes. He has been faithful forever in the past. He is faithful now, and he will be faithful forever into the future. It doesn't matter how much life you've lived. It doesn't matter how long you've been a follower of Christ. You are never, ever going to outgrow the good news of the gospel. This is the gospel. You know the God who is from the beginning and is unchanging. So remember the gospel. Children, remember the gospel. Fathers, remember the gospel. You know God. And then lastly, he addresses the young men who I consider to be all believers in between new believers and the veterans in their faith. Um, And we shouldn't be shocked. He also wants them to remember the gospel. Verse 13 says this, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. 
And then verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So I think what John's trying to get at here is that there's kind of, there's twin dangers that we come up against when it comes to battling against sin, fighting against sin in our own lives. On the one hand, uh, there's the danger of fatalism, and then on the other hand, triumphalism. So fatalism is the lie that says you will never overcome whatever sin you're battling right now. You are your addiction. It's your identity. Live into it, right? Um, embrace it. It's who you are, right? That's, that's fatalism, is that you don't actually have the power to overcome this. Failure is inevitable. You can never change. But the good news of the gospel, according to John here, is past tense. Will you put that back up? You have overcome the evil one. It's already done. It's already happened, right? Uh, it's not by your effort. It's not by how moral you are, how kind you are, how hard you try, how good your intentions are. It is finished because when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. He has defeated the powers of sin and Satan and death when he died on the cross. And even more so, he defeated the evil one when he rose from the dead and put death to death, getting rid of the last weapon that he has that has any power over us. You have overcome the evil one already. Believe it. You can change. But on the other side, there's a, a lie of triumphalism. And this is a, a danger, a belief that you're basically invincible. Um, it's, it's, it's foolishness to just walk into situations where you think you can overcome any sin on your own strength. John reminds us, in case we're tempted towards triumphalism, uh, that our strength is not in ourselves it is in the word of God abiding in us. Um, so the word abide, uh, it's just kind of a, we don't really use that word in English, right? That's not a common word that we use, but it means remain, stay. Right? So when you read abide, think remain. Um, the word of God remaining in us is the power that we have. The evil one uh, here is Satan. It's the tempter. It's the devil. It's the father of lies, as he's called in the Bible. Um, and his biggest trick, his biggest trick to make us trip up is to believe lies. Believe lies about who you are. Believe lies about God. Believe lies about the world around you. Believe lies about other people. Believe lies about God's church, right? And the way that we arm ourselves in the fight, in the battle against the evil one is that we need truth to fight against the lies. And so John tells us, how do you fight the fight of faith against the evil one? You need to be armed with the truth of the gospel. You need to be armed with the word of God remaining in you, abiding in you. So um, whether you're a new Christian or you're a veteran in your faith or you're anywhere in between, you need the gospel. You do not outgrow the gospel ever in your life. Remember the gospel. It is the power that can change you and shape you and move you toward God's kingdom forever and ever, okay? You're forgiven. You're a child. You, need, you know the unchanging eternal God and you have already overcome the evil one. But there's a part two to this passage. It's not just remember the gospel. That's not the only formula for moving forward and being faithful in your life 
the part two to this is reject the world. Reject the world. So let's take a look at verse 15. It says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Uh, a number of years ago, I, uh, I was working in campus ministry and I was at ASU. You can boo if, if you don't like ASU, yeah. I was waiting for it. Um, you won't boo when you hear the story. Um, I met this guy, uh, it was the very first day of school, and uh, he had moved from South Central Los Angeles, um, and I met him in the Memorial Union on campus, and I got uh, to just have a spiritual conversation with him. We were sitting outside the Chick-fil-A there, um, and I shared the gospel with him. And this guy's eyes, you could just see, um, he was making connections, and he put his faith in Christ for the first time there. And then over the, the course of the next couple of weeks, I was like, okay, man, we are, we are going to meet together. We are going to read the Bible together. We're gonna, I'm going to help you figure out what does it mean to live the Christian life now, right? And so the first week I had him read the Gospel of John. This is all about Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, all the things that he said, miracles that he did. So he reads that and he asks me some questions. And then the next week I was like, okay, read 1 John. That's written to Christians so that we would know that we have eternal life, okay? Read that one and then come back to me and we'll talk about it. So he comes back and he has this question. So these are written by the same guy, right? Like, yes, yeah, they're both written by John. Okay, um, so why is it that in John 3.16, this is a new believer, why is it that in John 3.16, he says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, but then in 1 John 2.15, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Oof, that's a tough one, Jordan. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe it's a different word in Greek. I'm like flipping through my phone trying to figure it out. No, it's not a different word in Greek. It's exactly the same. It's cosmos for both, yeah. John uses the word world here in, in the letter of 1 John in a very unique and specific way. He means a very unique and specific thing. He doesn't mean planet Earth. He doesn't mean the people of God's world. Uh, this is what uh, Samuel Ngewa, a commenter uh, from the Africa Bible commentary says. He says that the world, when John uses it in 1 John, is the organized system, whether controlled by humans or demons, that is in opposition to God. Uh, Tony Evans says it a little bit differently, but almost the same. When John talks about the world, he's not talking about planet Earth. He's talking again about an organized system headed by Satan that draws us away from God's love and God's will. And John um, elaborates. Uh, he he kind of doubles down on this, that it's not planet Earth. It's the system of evil organized against God and his reign on Earth. In verse 16, he says it this way. All that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, it's from the world. So the desires of the flesh, in other words, that would be the internal sinful desires that we have, the ways that we are compelled to sin against God internally. The desires of the eyes, I think that this is really getting at the external pressures to conform to the people around us, to look like our neighbor when they are opposed to God and his reign in the world. And then the pride of life, that's, it's 
difficult to translate that phrase. Um, Some versions translate this the pride of wealth or the pride of possessions. I think that's probably the best way to translate it. Um, This desire that we have, this unending thirst to get ahead, to get forward, to have a good position in life, um, to bolster our own reputation with goods and wealth and comfort. Those things, internal, external, and the pride of life, those things are the things of the world, the things that are organized against God's reign and rule here on earth. And we often put our our affections and our hopes in these things. Often. We think they'll give us what we want. We think they'll give us our deepest desires. Maybe we think um, the hope of being married someday, the hope of having a family, the hope of owning a home, the hope of getting ahead, building wealth, building a legacy. We yield our affections to stability, to security that's offered in the American dream, lift it up. The hope of our nation being uh, cured of all of its problems, all of its injustices and evils. We're 12 months out, folks, 12 months from all the rhetoric being dialed back up politically. We give our hopes and our affections, we yield them to progress, to economic growth that we find in the Republican or the Democratic dreams. The hope of being freed from the discomfort and the pain of life that we experience every single day, we yield to the comfort and the entertainment culture that comes from the consumer dream lifted up. And those are only a few. That's only a few of them. We readily give our hope and our affections and our desires away to autonomy and freedom and technological advancement and pleasure and expression, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And the sad truth that we need to hear this morning, the sad truth is, it does not matter how much you love those things. They will never love you back. Never. It doesn't matter how much hope and effort you put into those things, they will never, ever love you. So we shouldn't be surprised when we read, don't love the world, because John is trying to encourage us not to hate the non-human creation, not to hate the people in God's good world. He's not telling us to build bunkers and hide from culture, right? He's trying to encourage us and keep us from placing our hopes and our dreams and our affections in the wrong place. He wants to keep us from putting those things in the systems of the world that are organized against God's reign and rule and will. And we see this uh, as a consistent theme throughout the Bible. So once again, we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 24. You can't serve God and money. He's just reiterating Jesus, right? Jesus' brother James says it like this in James 4, 4. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The world, the systems of opposition to God, don't want to be your friend. So don't be friends with the world. Notice how else John says this in verse 15. I think this is an encouragement for me. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Uh, So John here, he's not pitting uh, against the loving the world against loving the Father, right? He doesn't say, um, uh, stop loving the world, start loving God. 
That's not the command here. The command is, don't love the world, which will never love you back. Instead, receive the love of the Father. See that? The love of the Father is not in him. Not Start loving the Father. He's saying, receive the love of the Father rather than love the world. The world won't love you back, but God already loves you. Receive the love of the Father. And there's one more reason, one more reason that we should reject the world. Look at verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides. And again, think, remains forever. One more reason to not give away your love and your hope and your dreams and your affections to the world's systems. It is passing away. It won't remain. Um, Now, I think it's helpful to address the fact that this is saying that the world is passing away, but remember when we read world, we should not be thinking planet earth. It's not, he's not saying earth is going to be evapora, you know, evaporated into dust, right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the systems of evil organized against God will not have the final say over this world. They're passers-by. They're just walking past and they won't be here forever, right? Um, so the thing that's passing away is evil. It's sin. It's idolatry. It's putting our hopes and our dreams and our worship into things that are created rather than the creator God. Someday those things, they're going to be long faded from our memory. They're going to be gone. And the thing that's going to be restored is God's good world by Jesus himself. He's going to restore it. And people who do the will of God will remain in the world with him forever. We will be a part of the new creation that he makes we will be restored ourselves. I have a tendency, I think, um, to read things like this. Whoever does the will of God abides forever and to want to rewind and to start defending God. You know, this is talking about obedience. So I want to like give all this nuance to you and say, you know, when he's talking, obedience is a scary word in our culture. We don't like obeying, you know, this isn't legalism. I want to give all these, you know, kind of, defenses of God's word. But the truth is that love and obedience are always talked about in the Bible as two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin. Leslie Newbegin says, obedience is the test of love. Obedience is the test of love. Love is the content of obedience. Obedience is the test of love Love is the content of obedience. So someone who says that they have the Father's love in them but does not obey the Father does not really love the Father. At the same time, someone who obeys all of the rules and follows all of the commandments to a T, but they don't have love for God and they don't have love for their neighbors, they have empty religion and zealotry, right? So remember, the world's systems, they're passing by. They won't last. But those who know God, those who love the Father, who are loved by the Father, who do the Father's will, they will remain forever in God's restored world. So reject the world. Its promises are empty. It's not going to love you back. Instead, receive the love of the Father, which compels you to do the will of the Father. So I come back to this question from the beginning of our time together. How do we stand firm in our faith over the long haul? Can we do it? 
I want to say the way we do it is mostly a long, uneventful, unexciting journey of being faithful moment by moment. It's simple obedience. And friends, you will forget the gospel. I forget the gospel. You will forget the gospel. So come back to it constantly. Remind yourself of it constantly. Like John reminds us in this passage, you are forgiven. You know the Father. You are a child. You have overcome the enemy. And you will find yourself over and over and over and over and over again in this life, lured by the world's systems, lured into compromising, lured into small little decisions that could have a cascade effect over time. So remind yourself that the world, as much as you love it, won't love you back, that it's fading away, and instead receive the love of the Father, which will sustain and empower you for your life. The Christian life is mostly one of unseen, unrecognized, slow, small, humble acts of repentance, belief, and trust. It's a cascade effect of faithfulness over the long haul. So focus, friends, on simple obedience today. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for the gospel that it never ceases to be good news. We're thankful for your love, which continues to uphold us and sustain us and propel us toward actually obeying you in the little things in our lives. We pray, I pray for myself and I pray for all of my friends here in this room. Help us to be obedient to you moment by moment in the small unseen ways. We pray that not only for individuals here in this room, that there would be a cascade effect of faithfulness over the long haul of their lives, but that there would be a cascade effect of uh, faithfulness toward the city of Tucson, toward our country, toward our nation, that people would understand and respond to the good news of Jesus because they see how we obey you in the simple and unseen ways. Help us to be faithful today and over the long haul, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.